An occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're taking another look at one of Lovecraft's stories. But we're going back a bit earlier. Well, actually, we pretty much have to go back a bit earlier because we started <laughs> yeah. with its last story. <laughs> say, not difficult, really. Yes. <laughs> but, but we're going back to pretty well the first major story he wrote uh lovecraft had been writing quite a lot by this stage but i think this was you know certainly in my opinion the you know the, the first really solid you know large-scale dramatic story that he wrote and that of course is the rats in the walls indeed the uh the opening description the small little canned intro i've got in my edition from barnes and noble says this story perhaps the greatest of lovecraft's first decade of writing yeah, and, and and I go along with that. Um, it's you know not not the equal of some of the stuff that he was writing in the last decade of his <laughs> life, but uh, yeah, it's it, it's a solid story. It's got a lot of you know very interesting material in it, and probably some of his strongest, clearest descriptions. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's up there with the others. I mean, I didn't used to think that when I used to read it. I don't know if I didn't really get it or what. Um, or whether whether I've really got it now, but um, reading it this time more than ever, I really enjoyed it. And I think part of that is that when I'm reading it, and ha- and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking I'm going to be talking about this in a few days. I'm really focusing on it and reading it slowly and really trying to absorb it and and and, and picture every sentence. And um, yeah, it was I th- really like this story this time. Well, one of the interesting things about it is the fact that there's an awful lot packed into some of that description. Mm. Um, and also there's a lot in the story, more than any other Lovecraft story I can think of, that's hinted at. Mm. Um, there's there's a lot of stuff which just is not explained or not laid out for the reader, but you infer or you know you, you pick up associations and... That, that, I think, is a very powerful technique for a horror writer because by getting the audience or the reader to do their, the work, you know, they're going to produce you know, nightmarish images in their own head that are you know, more powerful than anything you as a writer could write. Yes, unsettling. Yes, yeah. but, but we're perhaps getting a bit ahead of ourselves here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for those who haven't read the story or those who need a refresher, let's talk well, about a, what the story's about. Give a brief synopsis. The story starts... Um, in uh, 1923 and according to his letters that's when he wrote it so i think he was sat there in you know july maybe 1923 and he just looked at the calendar and made that today i've Mm -hmm. I've got the started from august to september 1923 yep um but i think the story the first date mentioned in the story is the 16th of july 1923 that's right um so it does very much seem like he just you know like it, you know, when we're writing a modern day scenario, we just look at the calendar and say, "Yep, yeah, okay." So you know, yeah. November the fourteenth. 
and one thing I think is is interesting about the introduction to this story is that it does something that is very, very unusual for one of Lovecraft's stories, which is it gives biographical information about the narrator. Yeah. You know, most of Lovecraft's characters are ciphers. Uh, they, they're there to convey plot. They're there to, you know, you know, as a proxy for the reader so they can experience all the weird shit that's going on. But this is... This is dangerously close to being a character. Yeah. Oh, yeah, very much so. And, and from first person as well. Yeah. I was reading from the annotated H.P. Lovecraft, um, annotated by the great S.T. Joshi, uh, and he, he quotes Lovecraft as saying that the story was suggested by a very commonplace incident, the cracking of wallpaper late at night. <laughs> okay, I am almost the same age as Lovecraft when he died, I have wallpaper in my house. I've lived in, you know, many houses with wallpaper. I've never sat there late at night and thought, God, that damn cracking wallpaper. <laughs> What's but, up with that? But uh, yeah, one thing that's kind of different, perhaps, is the fact that, you know, you, like a lot of people in the UK, live in a house that's built of stone or bricks. And a lot of American structures are wooden. Uh, so, they, you know, they do crack a bit more in the wind, perhaps. Uh-huh. Not what you think it is. Perhaps. Could be. Either that or it's just wallpaper that man was not meant to know. <laughs> yes. Or, or maybe he really did have rats in his walls. Mm-hmm. It's commonplace, apparently. So um, he sets it up with the uh, account of him living in America and has done for several generations, um, but that he had some ancestors that used to live in Britain. Um, and we even learn about his son who came over here uh, in the war in the First World War, and was invalided back to America? Yeah. Or does he die over here? I can't remember. No, he's invalided, he's invalided back, and, then, and then dies yeah. a few months later, or within a year or something. But he does make yeah. a good friend over here. Is yes. Edward, Edward Norris? Norris, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, after the death of his son, he's kind of somewhat at a loss for uh, what to do, and he decides to um, look up his old uh, family haunts, or his family house. House taking on two meanings, as in, well, both meanings of house. <laughs> the, uh, the the architectural house and the family house. Yes, which turn out to be somewhat intertwined in this story. Mm. Um, we, you know, I, I think, possibly like you, Paul, I listened uh, to the H.P. Lovecraft uh, literary yeah. podcast uh, prior to doing this, just so we could steal all their ideas, yeah. uh, as we do. Um, I can and... say gladly I didn't, so no, no plagiarism <laughs> on my front. <laughs> and they had Kenneth Hyde as a guest on the, ep- on the two episodes where they discussed the rats and the balls. And uh, he had the insight that um, this story was very much Lovecraft's answer to uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher. And you know this that aspect of it ties in perfectly. That you know again that's you know both meanings of the word house. You know the the, the structure and the family tree are perfectly intertwined. And you know the, 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 I think that's that's a, a, probably almost certainly where Lovecraft you know got the idea to do this from. I was thinking there was another literary influence there uh, mm-hmm. rather than Poe. Um, although again, might be skipping a bit fu- um, further into the. Um, into the story itself but especially at one particular passage I had just overwhelming recollections of the, the likes of the Morlocks and the Eloy in um, in the Time Machine oh, so yes. H.G. Wells so um, yeah so he heads over here and uh, he's soon um, enjoying his uh, the old family home well of course at the outset of the story 
much like in the haunter of dark the haunter of the dark where we're told that um the guy was dead from the beginning yes um, robert blake the, the guy yeah the guy the dude um we're told that uh hexham priory has been blown up and destroyed at the very outset of the story so we're kind of set up for you know what's going to happen they're not messing around they're blowing up the foundations and ripping yeah. the place yeah so i mean not, not just the priory but the foundation yes. the very ground it was built on yeah they didn't go quite as far as salting the earth but you know they wanted to or they that, probably should that was me thinking of the ending of the haunting and now you just put now you just said it in words <laughs> To be fair, I found the intro, particularly while it was good uh, scene setting, largely irrelevant and frankly a bit dull. Um, it took mm. me about three readings to get to that point. And then finally, when he actually got to the house and started to experience any um, things that started to look a little bit odd in the night, that's where it actually started gripping my attention and went and got interesting. Oh, gosh, I, I disagree completely there. I mean, you know, for a start, you know, as I said, it's a rare example of characterisation in Lovecraft. But that characterisation does actually pay off in his descent into madness at the end. It's, yeah, in a lot of ways, you know, Norris represents the, the things that he never got to have, particularly you know, with his son dying so young, mm-hmm. whereas you know, Norris's family tree got to carry on. Yeah, I think um, it's something I appreciated more on um, reading it again, was that, that introduction. I think the first few times I read it, well, the first time I read it, maybe that didn't really chime with me so much. Mm. Well, in which case, that's definitely definitely my experience. I know it's a, not a criticism, but definitely a comment that's been levelled in my direction, say, looking at Scott, that <laughs> um, I'm very verbose. And it just seemed to be, yeah, I could you could get across those same points in half the time and cut to the cut to the meat of the story a bit quicker. That was just that was just my <laughs> reaction <laughs> to it. I know. Uh, so, yeah. it, it, so um, Delapore sits in his home and, and he's troubled. Um, by the the sounds of rats in the walls, isn't he? He's troubled by the sounds of rats um, scrabbling about um, somewhere in the house. He sets traps uh, which are sprung and empty. Uh, his cat, which I'm sure we'll mention later, is uh, his big is, black cat, is uh, very uh, troubled by it all. And to cut a long story short, he ends up down in the cellar. Um, yes. Uh, he, well, he he gets Norris to go down to the cellar with him, discovers these odd Roman ruins, uh, uh, what looks like a, a temple to Carbella uh, in the, the cellar, um, and um, then you know, it hints that it goes on further down, uh, gets a bunch of investigators from London. This is where the Call of Cthulhu starts, isn't yeah. it? It's a scenario scene. I don't think there. anywhere else in Lovecraft does this happen quite so explicitly. <laughs> yes. He goes to London. You know, your friend, your good friend, <laughs> is it William Delapore? What's his, what's his yeah, Christian definitely... name? Mr. Mr. Yeah. Delapore. Sir. Wishes you to help him uh, um, explore the, the cellar of his house. <laughs> Yes, you are, to what would you, say? you are to accompany his cat on this You're expedition. a psychic uh, investigator. As long as it's a wine cellar, sir, I am right there. <laughs> Don't bother with any shotguns or any of that rubbish. You'll <laughs> be fine. Um, one thing we've we've glossed over uh, getting here is the the, uh, the family history of the Delapore family, which which is you know becomes very very important to the end. Um, you know, the fact that the family was shunned by everyone in the local area, uh, they were considered to be uh, worse than Gilda Ray, that they performed horrific rites, um, killed all their servants. Yeah. Uh, and you know this this is what had, what what had led to the family you know going off to america uh ex priory uh, going into the hands of the crown 
um, <laughs> and and yeah, you know, the stuff of the, the story, Delapore is is buying uh, Exempire uh, back off off the British government. Although surprising, with a certain degree of tacit approval, that it was believed that by killing all these um, all these manservants, you can almost hear the silent round of applause of going, "Congratulations, you've got rid of the infestation of evil. Now go, yes. shoot, shoot, exit stage left, go." Yes, well. Uh, that's what Discovery didn't do that good a job. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. If he worked for Rent-A-Kill, we'd be demanding our money back. <laughs> so down in the cellar, they moved this um, this this stone or altar or something. Yeah, the altar. And um, lo and behold, there's a tunnel leading downward, which, in italics, was dug from below. <laughs> and full of bones. That's pretty cool, isn't it? It hmm. is. Yes, it's not just full of bones, but full of deformed, slightly inhuman bones, mm-hmm. um, uh, which would be gnawed by rats. Indeed. Now, going on to um, a few game rules here, I mean, there must have been a sand roll there. Many, yes. many, many sand rolls, according to the description. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I would say, in this part, um, the way it's written... I think there's only one, uh, William Brinton, uh, one of the uh, investigators, that passes his sand roll on seeing the Twilight Grotto below, because everybody else freaks out. Yeah, it does kind of strike me as a Professor Armitage-type figure in that sense, yeah. that confronted with the horrors of the mythos, that he can stand fast, or at least no one sees his reaction, because he's the one in front. <laughs> <laughs> and there are um, kind of involuntary actions as a result of um, sand loss. Um, Norris cries out inarticulately. Um, the narrator says he gasped or, or hissed. The man behind him croaked. My God. And uh, Thornton, the psychic investigator, faints. Mm. And not for the f- only time. <laughs> oh, maybe he's got diabetes. Oh. Or could be a, I was going to say, um, auditioning for a Doctor Who companion part. <laughs> So what the hell is it that they find down here, down this tunnel, under the house? Because I, I can picture that bit. And then they go down, and there's like a whole world down there. Yeah, it gets absolutely bizarre at this stage. I and mean, this is one of the things I love about this story. Um, Lovecraft had uh, an epic scope sometimes. I mean, when, when you get to stories like at The Mountains of Madness and he's describing, this, describing the city of the older things, this alien civilization, there, there, there is definitely an epic touch to the writing there. Um, but this is really the first hint of it in his stories. I mean, or, or maybe there's bits in, say, Dagon, but um, the, with this, he, he is describing this <laughs> this bizarre lost civilization, or the ruins of this lost civilization, which has been buried, um, or, or at least under the cliffs, uh, the, you know, upon which is built this English country manor, which is just, uh, it, it's such a startlingly weird thing. But it must be a vast subterranean space, because he describes not only, but buildings, yeah. a, a stone circle, tumuli. So this must be going, this must be covering vast areas of land yeah and and it's all lit because uh the sunlight is coming in through cracks in the edifice of the cliffs mm. uh which weren't quite visible from outside um but yeah he, he makes mention of the fact that there are tunnels going off from here which he believes um stretch down to the center of the earth and he, make, he makes a reference at this stage to uh, Nialathotep and the the two um, amorphous pipers who you know, um, who attend him as he sits there in the centre of the earth. Mm-hmm. 
of a cross between the image that you'd later associate with Azathoth mm-hmm. and reminiscent of the uh, moniker he, he ascribes to him in The Fungi from Yogoth, the demon, because it definitely has this almost satanic impression that this figure sat at the centre of the earth. Yeah, it's not the, certainly not the Nalathotep that we kind of come to know later and the, the kind of more canon one from the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. No, it's, it's something very different. And I mean, we'll touch on that, I think, again a bit later, because I, I think that's a, an interesting aspect of the story. There's one, um, thinking of when we went back to have a look at Haunter of the Dark, that there was a reference in there that harked back to In the Mouth of Madness, the John Carpenter film, where the church was described as being a, say, a seat of evil older than the wider than the known universe. I found another one that John Carpenter seems to have lifted from this one as well. <laughs> Um, um, towards the section in the film where uh, the old ones are finally broken through and as um, the editor is reading out the manuscript behind um, Sam Neill describes the pit that um, these things are spiralling up from as being lined with uh, the bones of countless unhallowed centuries uh, quote unquote from the second to last page hmm hmm Another reference, another reference that seems to have leaked into the story. Hopefully, in th- on our third story, we have, um, we have a look out. I'll find another quote that links, links back to the film. But, but um, there's callbacks at this point of the story to some dreams that Delapore had earlier, um, which we didn't mention in the first part of the. the uh, yeah, story. where he's a swine herd with strange fungus beasts. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, a, a demonic swine herd. Indeed. Yes. Or a Morlock, because yeah. I kept envisioning it. <laughs> yes, the, the, but yeah, with these strange, kind of flabby, fungoid, as you said, creatures. Um, and, uh, you know, he, we find evidence of these things down here, as well as their butchery. And there's, you know, an indication that these things are um, perhaps related to humans. Uh, and that they've been held captive. Yeah. They've been held captive and kind of. Um, either as prisoners or, or farm animals or something. Well, so, certainly as food stuff, it yeah. seems. Uh, because you know, at one point we encounter a building which is um, you know, being used to butcher them. Mm. Then it all goes a bit wrong, doesn't it? <laughs> what do you mean wrong? <laughs> well, <laughs> you're not thinking like a Call of Cthulhu keeper here, Paul. <laughs> yeah, uh, the words you're looking for are gloriously right. <laughs> uh, poor old Mr. Delapore. Finds himself, you know, finds his old buddy Norris. He has an old friend for dinner. What's the problem? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't me. I didn't eat him. <laughs> well, yeah, this is after a, a brief rant. Uh, you know, th- th- this is another classic uh, Lovecraft character degenerating into madness, ranting in, in the most poetic manner. Yeah. Uh, yes. And, po- um, poetic, and se- all, yeah, poetic and also inspired from another source. Yes. Yeah, in, in several languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, including uh, Gaelic. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which, from the notes I had from the chapter here, I'm doing a poll. I'm the, looking at the page and can't. Yeah, it's, it's something to do with small boys and windows, isn't it? Matt? Is it? Uh, for, <laughs> <laughs> from Fiona MacLeod's *The Sin Eater*, from which Lovecraft has borrowed the narrator's final utterances in Gaelic. Yeah. Uh, but yes, yeah, he comes out of this uh, bout of madness uh, to discover uh, him, himself, or you know, to be discovered sitting there in the half-eaten remains of Norris. Uh, and yeah, uh, perhaps not unjustly so. The you know the the story ends up with him behind bars, uh, ranting away, 
uh, and and Exum Priory being destroyed. Along yeah. with his psychic buddy in the next room, they won't let him talk to. Yes. And the rats in the walls that no one else can hear. Yeah, I, yeah, we, we sort of glossed over that bit as well. But, you know, um, no one apart from him all the way through the story has been able to hear these rats in the walls. Yeah, that are guiding uh, no, him forever downwards. Yeah. No, no, no one ever sees the rats. The rats never actually turn up in the, the story. So, you know, they, they, these are obviously some kind of psychic manifestation or something luring him down there to, you know, his, his familial source. Yeah. So there are no rats, right? Well, I, th- there, there's the evidence of rats at some stage because th- there's the discussion of the bones having been gnawed by rats. And the but traps it, all get sprung. Yes, yes, but that's potentially a very, very long time ago. Yes. Um, and I take it that the traps being sprung is just some kind of supernatural manifestation, perhaps. Yeah, yeah some, some psychic manifestation or something like that. Actually, it occurs to me there's... Uh, one of the segments that Nigel Neal did for Beasts, which is a bit like that, uh, all to do with a, a rodent that doesn't actually exist and is just a psychic manifestation, but that takes place in a supermarket. Mm-hmm. A bit different a setting. Yes. Could be a rodent of unnatural size if you want to bring in the Princess Bride <laughs> reference there. Yes. So I got to thinking about um, how this could be uh, how this could be a, a game. Mm. Um I can kind of see there's there's two takes on it. You could have the London group being um, employed by Delapore, who's perhaps an NPC, to come and um, you know come and invest, come and carry out the investigation, which is very much the traditional mode of um, running the game. Yeah, I mean certainly the published scenarios that I you know grew up playing were very much of that ilk. Yes, here's the most interesting character. He's an NPC. Now bring your characters in and he'll tell you what to do. And one of you might get eaten by him if you're very, very lucky. (laughs) What intrigues me, actually, going back to the story, is whilst Delapore was eating Norris, what what were the others doing? What were they? What's their story? That's kind of, you know, what were they up to? I mean, uh, Thornton apparently faints again for the second time, but uh, the rest of them... Yeah, you know, perhaps lost forever down in the the dark pits. Maybe they've gone down to visit Niala the Tep down there at the centre of the I guess we don't know that they'll come back, do we? Yeah. I must admit, that, that definitely does give you a lot of elbow room for me thinking as a keeper to run that kind of scenario. There's plenty of horror you could throw at them in this, if they, oh, do, yeah. dive, dive deep, they dive deeper into those depths. Lots of deeds. <laughs> Tongue up round the brown. And the other one, uh, the way of running the scenario would be to have the PCs with some kind of family history tied to it, though I kind of struggle to see how you would tie, you know, you could tie one PC in with the family history, but well, I'm not quite sure how you do that. If I were doing this uh, and taking that approach, um, yeah, I'd use a slightly different backstory instead of the son dying. That perhaps you know the you know the son survived, married, um, uh, maybe there's another sibling as well. Uh, and the whole family goes out to try to reconstruct the old family home. Uh, so there's, you know, perhaps three or four of them. You know, if, well, if someone's married into the family, that you know, that makes it even more interesting. You know, they, they're sort of standing there watching the other three go mad and trying mm-hmm. to work out what the hell's going on and why you know the other three are talking about the scratchings in the walls and you know he or she can't hear a damn thing. And what is it that happens to um, Delapore when he gets down there? What is what do you take that? Uh, he, he, I mean, he's kind of reverted to be like one of his ancestors. 
But why is it? Is it? Is it in a symptom of insanity, or as a product of having seen what his ancestors must have done and the sites that he sees down there? Is it part of his kind of racial memory mm. or kind of bloodline that just kind of manifests at that time? I, I think it's probably the latter, but yeah, you know, as you say, it's very open to interpretation. But there's the the thing there that the Delapore line has you know been tainted with evil all the way down uh, that they've done these horrific things. Now, whether that's because that you know the the place that they were living in had this influence over them and changed them, or vice versa, um, I, I I don't think it's even important. That you know, it go, again goes back to that idea of the two meanings of house, the fact that you know, as you know, as per the, whole, the the fall of the house of Usher, you know, both the the building and the family tree are intertwined; they're one and the same. So you know, as as the evil within you know, the house wakes up, the evil within Delapore himself wakes up. In a fiction, that's the, it's fine for that ambiguity, but in the game, if you were running. The game, I think you'd want to know when is this going to get triggered for the character? Is it because they fail their sand rolls and and they're they're driven insane and this is a symptom of that? Or is it a a malevolent influence that... I'm thinking of kind of game Mm. mechanics here. What would trigger that? in that I'd, character I'd be the latter of the two rather than it just being reliant on sand loss I'm thinking this is definitely almost like a psychic trigger that he's been exposed to a certain stimulus uh, maybe mechanically he, fa- he fails a power check to, um, to to fight off its influence which until that point it really only is when he is in the Stygian Black that he has this oppressive atmosphere all around him that finally he snaps not mentally because his sanity is still <laughs> in inverted commas still relatively intact uh, compared to some of the others, but I think that he is certainly influenced by whatever is down there, and that maybe it taps into that racial memory at that point. Well, I suppose we see a foreshadowing of that earlier with the him hearing the rats in the walls, yeah, exactly. having the dreams. Yes, yeah. but yeah, I mean, as far as the mechanical trigger for it is concerned, I and mean, you could also treat it as you know sanity related, but you know, it's sort of, it's sort of related in the way that. When you lose enough sand, you start getting Cthulhu Mythos skill with this, you know, because you're starting to see through you know, the illusion of reality, you're starting to see the, the truth of the universe. Uh, it's the same thing here, as his mind starts to fracture, perhaps, you know, he's seeing the truth of what you know, his bloodline and his house and this place really are and how they're all tied together. And suddenly knows what's at the centre of the planet as well. Yes. Not the kind of thing everyone knows, admittedly. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it occurred to me. Um, in the rules, uh, in seventh we've gone and got a, a, a table of um, effects as, as side effects to insanity uh, for the bout of madness. So you, you kind of flip out and you have this short burst of madness, um, and there's a kind of an optional chart that keeper can roll on for ideas. Um, I was thinking for a scenario like this, uh, you might want to do a custom yes. chart. To, to theme it around the themes of the house hmm. and the, the kind of effects that it might have. So rather than you know, the default ones, they're all kind of much more tailored to the scenario. But particularly for characters who are from the Delapore family. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, so perhaps even losing, you know, a, there might just be a few suggestions for involuntary actions, you know, hearing rats or seeing them out of the corner of your eye or, um, you know, such yeah. things and then... Well, you're losing that first point of sanity from hearing the rats in the walls, that's what opens you up to the psychic dreams, for example. Yeah. Yeah, so number one, start hearing, um, start hearing rats up to number ten, take a chunk out of your wife's thigh. Mm-hmm. 
seems so. Nom nom nom. <laughs> but I, going back to that image of Nyarlathotep at the centre of the earth, um, I, I, I found that fascinating. I mean, it's just one line in the, the whole mm. book, and it's throwback. I found it interesting for a number of things. I you know, reasons. I it, it was you know uh, a very early example of, of um, a mythos entity turning up in Lovecraft stories. I, this came after the story of Nyarlathotep, mm. um, and you know again that that's. That's an aspect of it that interests me. I, I've, I've harked on about this before, and I won't stop now. Which is, you know, Lovecraft deliberately contradicting himself in stories. You know, he, he talks about Nyarlathotep in a very particular way in the story. Nyarlathotep is this, you know, man coming out of the east with, you know, strange wonders and harking the, you know, the, the apocalypse. Um, the, um, you know, in this, you know, he's presenting him sort of as a proto-Azathoth uh, at the centre of the earth, you know, surrounded by idiot heralds piping. Um, Faceless god, no less. Yeah. Um, again, it's a very sinister image, and the fact that he's sharing a name. Are the two entities the same? Is this, you know, I- incomplete knowledge on uh, Dilipo's part? Um, is he is he using the wrong name for something? You know, is, is, is he using the right name and the other stuff's wrong? Yeah. Um, or are they both true? You know, you know, does this go back to you know, Nyarlathotep having many aspects and many masks, and, mm. and one of them is this eternal presence at the centre of the earth? You know, it, it, I, I, it's, it's one of these things I really like, because, again, it hammers home the fact that this is beyond human understanding. You know, yes, Nyarlathotep is walking the earth as a man, but he is also this demonic entity at the centre of the earth, and he is both of these things at once. You know, this cannot possibly be, but it is deal with it yeah it's kind of the, the fact that he writes him in this story um a bit in in the role that we would kind of expect to see azathoth isn't that surprising if it was the first time he'd mentioned Nalathotep? but as you say as he's already written him in one story to put him in here as something different and then to reinvent him again later yeah you know, the, more the more I'm thinking, this could have been, uh, made a great uh, side adventure chapter in the London section from Mask of Nyarlathotep. Actually, going to meet the Avatar at the centre of the world, uh, the centre of the world, rather than go off oh, to meet yeah. the Haunter of the Dark. Yeah, that would have been a great rewrite. That would have been good. Yeah, certainly better than going mad, going visiting a serpent person up at, um, up in North London. Mutter, mutter, mutter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bloody uh, painting drove me mad. Who'd write a scenario about serpent people? Nah, no idea. Um, so. <laughs> But, yeah, I, I, I keep saying this, and I've said this about half a dozen times. Say it again, Scott. Podcast, Say but what? I, but, but, yeah, don't be afraid to have these contradictions. Yeah. Don't be tied to canon. Yeah, do things to fuck with your players' minds. Um, yeah, it, just because it says something in the rule book yeah, doesn't mean that you can't just you know, go 180 degrees out from that. Lovecraft did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, but at least when we've got that, we can use that as a frame of reference to screw with them even more. Yeah. We're not evil to our players, honest, much, sometimes. Oh, well, maybe all the time. What about monsters? Well, obviously the main monster in the story is Delapore himself. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we hear reference of these quadruped things, but they're kind of degenerate humans, from what I can understand. Were they humans? I was going to say the Eloy stand-in from Mm. my reading. Um... But yeah, again, I, I like the fact that they're not defined. Yeah, you know, they, this makes them all the more sinister. Well, they don't actually seem threatening, though, do they? No, they, 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 they seem to be much a, more victims. Yeah, they were kind yeah. of a herd beast that was used for 
food by mm. the Delapores. Um, but aside from the cannibalistic Delapore line, um, well, I, I suppose you know part of the horror of those things is the fact that you know they, there is this human aspect to them. You know, how how did that come about? Have they been interbreeding with humans? Were they once human and degenerated? You know, are they transformed humans? A missing link. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think yeah. If this were a scenario having contradictory ideas about that floating around mm. again, yeah, um, and yeah, I mean, if if I were to try to do a scenario based on this, then yeah, I, I'd I'd start. I suppose, particularly if there were madness involved, you know, uh, players or investigators going mad, I, I started sort of start putting the you know the idea in their heads. How did these things get like that? Is there something down here that is doing that to them? Have you been exposed to it? The story mentions that it uh, took twenty generations um, for them to de- degenerate to being quadrupeds. Yes. Um, but that'd be another another lovely um, sanity side effect that you feel yourself, you know, suddenly you can do nothing but run around on all fours. Yes. Um, and you can see some other people doing it just down that tunnel. <laughs> They're your friends. All one big happy family. Yay. Actually, has there been a, a like with Haunter of the Dark, we have numer- uh, we have a couple of different spin-off adventures. Have there been any that we are aware of for Rats in the Walls? I'm not aware of any. I did a Google search today to see if I could find any, and I couldn't find any. That's not to say yeah. there haven't been, but... Uh, yeah, I'm not aware of any either, but hmm. you know, there are a lot of Cthulhu scenarios out there I have not read. Hmm. Um, well, dear listener, if you do know of any, please let us know. Yeah, yeah, it'd be interesting to hear. It yeah. seems like there should be, to me. Or, yeah. or at least strongly influenced by, not necessarily going back to Hexham Priory or, or whatever. Well, I suppose there's even scope for going back and delving down below, you know, the, what remains of the... I mean, they couldn't have destroyed well, all this stuff. Well, that, that's the point. I mean, the, you know, there are tunnels, you know, going way down into the earth. I, you know, here, here's an idea for a scenario. You start at the end of this, that you're part of the team or part of the crew that's going in to demolish Hexham Priory. Mm. You're the cover-up crew. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's not just the cover-up, but you're, you're going down there to try to you know, destroy what is um, you know, a huge... Uh, the remains of a huge civilization with tunnels going down to the earth. What do you do, and more to the point, what are you going to disturb in the process? Mm-hmm. Yes, he did say that there was definitely... The, that he heard something off in Mr. Jim Black, whether it be more rats, even if it were only psychic rodents of unusual size, there was something down there, maybe. Yeah, um, or you know, the remains of some of the things that built this civilization, or some of the people, uh, and some of the things they ate, or, or something much, much worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, the the other way that you know, the, the elements of this, I suppose, have turned up in maybe various Call of Cthulhu scenarios is it's. Um, this and perhaps the lurking fear are the, the closest things um, Lovecraft did to... I, I want to come up with a less pejorative term than dungeon crawl, but you know, the, 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 the exploration of subterranean depths. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, the Mountains of Madness as well. But the idea of you know, the, 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 the traditional RPG trope of you know, a group of people heading down into the darkness... Well, he uh, kind of sows the seed for that in this story, but doesn't really do it. It doesn't really go on a dungeon crawl, does it? No. I mean, it does more so in Mountains of Madness, I suppose. Yeah. There's more of a protracted kind of expedition through the, the, the tunnels and caverns and so on. In this, you kind of see it at a distance, and then that, that's kind of it. 
tantalising glimpse and no more. Yeah, uh, much like you know Harley Warren going down into the the, the, the crypt under the graveyard. Yes. Um, you know, we see him kind of disappearing, and and, and I kind of get the same kind of feeling from that because he, he yes. kind of reports up the phone line that there are wondrous things down here. Um, and it sounds a bit like he's gone to the same kind of place that we go mm. to uh, under um, Hexham Priory to me. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. The last statement of Randolph Carter. I think that's a a kind of theme that Lovecraft comes back to a few times, this kind of, you know, kind of underworld place mm. that that is full of wonder, really. Um, and it it does seem that it is kind of full of wonder more than just being a place of horror. Yes, yeah, that, that you know, you're seeing all these archaeological and historical marvels down here. It's quite, Lovecraft's quite attracted to it, I think. You know, to the things he writes about there, I think he'd kind of like to go down there and have a look himself. And, yeah, I, I suppose you could do a, a sort of superficial psychological um, look at this in that, you know, this is about him, Del- this is about Delapore, you know, being Lovecraft's proxy in this, delving into the horrors of his own family tree. And, you know, this, this in his case, you know, involves very much digging down into the darkness and encountering the literal horrors, you know, down there in the hidden realms uh, that have created his family. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not difficult to see that as a metaphor. Um, uh, for, for Lovecraft's own ongoing fears of what you know, what lay within his family tree, within his bloodline. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the fact there is that hidden madness waiting to erupt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that, that's there in a lot of Lovecraft stories. Mm-hmm. Another aspect of this that interested me was the fact that we've got the worship of these old Roman gods uh, being sort of an abomination within this this temple that lies underneath uh, Exxon Priory. Um, what is it? It's Magna Mater and um, uh, Attis. Kybella. Oh, At- yeah. Attis is referred to as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, 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 this is something quite different for Lovecraft, I think, uh, <laughs> in that, you know, it's, it's not his you know, own invented pantheon. <laughs> you know, the, these are historical deities. Um, and I'm thinking, yeah, it, th- th- that's quite an interesting twist to throw into a Call of Cthulhu scenario. Mm. Um, I mean, whether or not you use these as sort of proxies or masks for you know, mythos deities that are uh, lurking behind them, and that the worship perhaps led to something else, or whether you know the, 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 there is a place for this Roman pantheon of, of you know, dark and forgotten gods. I think so, it's it's largely to be kind of just referred to and left slightly ambiguous because mm. I think it is in this story we're not we're not told that it is Kybella or Attis or, or, or anybody that is actually you know manifestly a part of this it's just they were worshipped there were they real who knows there are certain hints I remember that there's the image of the sun that he implies is meaning of something else that it's yeah I must admit it's, I was struck by the same kind of impression that I'm surprised there's not references to the likes of Shubnigarath or any other any other big uh, pantheon god I would expect you know, related yeah. to the sun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's perhaps um, partly explained because this was one of his earlier stories, um, and he hadn't really done so much work on that other stuff at this stage. Am I right? Potentially. Yeah, but I mean, there, there were you know some early uh, parts to you know to the mythos that had turned up. I th- I, I'm trying to remember the chronology of whether the, things like the Hound and Dagon were written before this. I think they yes, were. Well, so. even Dagon was a Phoenician fish god. Yes. So, yeah, it was 
I mean, he brings out more of his knowledge of, of history and religion in this. Um, I mean, he was very, very well versed in such subjects. I, I, th I think we should be congratulated for getting to the end of this episode without degenerating into uh, an argument about the cat's name. <laughs> but there, there's no getting around the fact that, that Lovecraft gave a profoundly racist name to the cat in this. Yeah, almost kind of... It's one of those things that if it were being produced as a film or something today, they would change the name. Yes. And I think to good effect, really, because reading it, it kind of... It's such a jarring um, mm -hmm. name to be in the story oh, that God it almost is. takes you out of it. Yeah, just, call um, it just call him Moggy or her Moggy. I respect well, it his was, privacy. It was reprinted in a in a um, some publication in the 1950s and they changed the name to Black Tom. Okay. Well, I mean, Lovecraft's you know, the views were pretty racist even for the time. Yeah, I don't really buy the whole um, oh, it was just a product of his time and all no. that. No. How no, much no. was he a product of his time? <laughs> yeah, in no possible way. No. And, and no, there, there's no getting around the fact that Lovecraft was a huge racist. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's all a bit sad. Yes, yes, that, that aside, it's a pretty damn good story. Definitely, yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, 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 I agree with you know what they they said in that collection. You've got the, the you know, this this is you know, the first really of his major stories. Yeah, the, the greatest of his first ten years. Yeah, yeah. yeah we've got a, we've got a nod of approval from Paul. Doesn't come over too well, <laughs> well on the mic, but trust me, he's not what else to say. <laughs> um, well, if there's nothing else to say, let's let's say goodbye. Okay, well, uh, let's wrap it up there then, Scott. So. If you were so minded to go online, Scott, where would you find us? Um, I, well, mostly I find us in the shed here at the moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, in the cold. Long, though, cause it's cold. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yes. Says, says Paul with his tea cosy type hat. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll turn the heater up and everything. I, yeah, turn yeah, it on. I, 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 th I think I'll have to take a picture of Paul in this hat just so we can post it in the show notes. <laughs> wrong with my app? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yes, if you were inclined to find us online, uh, you could do so, well, our main home is at blasphemoustomes.com, and from there you can find links to all our social media presences, but if you want to go straight to the social media presences, uh, you can find us on Facebook, as the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, uh, you can find a Google Plus community called the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. With apparently some <laughs> mythical page that none of us know nothing about. Yes. <laughs> nothing of that. No, 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 no. We'll, we'll pretend the page doesn't exist. Um, the uh, the YouTube channel is under the good names of Jackson Elias. Uh, good good, good uh, Let's try that again in English. <laughs> the, the YouTube channel... You've not even been drinking white Russian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. The YouTube channel... <laughs> Shit. Outtake gold! <laughs> the YouTube channel is also the good friends of Jackson Elias... Uh, and you can find us on Twitter as the Good Friends of JE. Okay, that was easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope you keep that in. <laughs> and, and you can also catch us at conventions as well, um, as oh, one yes. of one of our biggest fans did uh, last weekend. Yes, hello, hello, Kevin. Hey, Mister Toad. Hello. <laughs> hope you have a good morning and putting together your furniture. Hey. <laughs> Yes, yeah, we'll be. I think we'll be at Dragon Meet as well. So, yes, we'll, uh, we'll definitely be at Dragon do, Meet. Do come and say hello if uh, if you see us and recognise us and yeah. know us and so on. I'll be running Cthulhu there as well, and Very I good. probably should do some. I'd better think of what I'm going to do for that because it's only three weeks away. 
Ah, no time at all. You can you can scribble something down the back By of the backpack. By the time backpack, this goes out, it'll probably only be a week away, Scott. But... <laughs> it would have been last week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll probably just be shambling around the uh, the uh, trade hall and various places. Brain. Yeah. <laughs> Given it, given, it, um, given we'll have to be there by nine, yeah, really will be like that for me in the morning. <laughs> so yes, yes, with with that rambling outro. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, it's uh, good night from me. And cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Is that fucking professional or what? <laughs> you have to keep that much in there, didn't we? Yeah.